This is for the nerds. This is for the brainiacs. This is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it, man. I know it, I know. So, what are your thoughts now that uh, we've released people to the flu? Uh, I, I mean, I think there's going to be a second wave. I think it will come earlier than previously expected. I think the initial expectation was going to be fall. But I imagine just the escalation of things with the protests that we're going to see a second wave probably midsummer. I don't know what that means. Most of the data is pointing to COVID just not being nearly as deadly as we expected it to be, at least outside of the fringes. Um, obviously, the fringe cases where people are high risk are still at very high risk. But, uh, you know, from everything I understand, the the phasing moving forward is going to be such that if you fall into the high risk category, you do the best you can to isolate yourself. And, you know, basically the high risk category will be the one quarantined and the rest of America will, you know, I guess scale towards herd immunity. But it seems like we're pretty far away from that as well. So I honestly don't know. But, you know, either we did a really great job of social distancing, which by and large, I think we probably did. But we didn't do that great of a job locking down. Like the country wasn't locked down by any stretch. So, uh, you know, I think the data is a little bit still out, kind of conflicting. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to get good data, good, good data because, like, we didn't have enough testing. So it was right. one of those things where it's like there's not enough testing. We don't know how many people actually have it. We don't know how many people are uh, asymptomatic. We don't, we don't really know what's going on. We do know that there's a lot of deaths and we do know that a lot of people uh, contracted it. Well, the deaths are, yes, there's a lot, but it's, it's far lower than previously predicted, like significantly lower. I think it was something like sub 1% had died in America. Now, granted that's within the scope of testing, right? So there's probably far more inf infected than we realize. The, the death toll is, is difficult to know mm. because the, the way they collect the data is like, uh, like, did they count George Floyd as... Uh, no, that was a homicide. Right, but allegedly he had yeah. COVID. Mm -hmm. So does it get... You know what I mean? Like, and he died of asphyxiation or, you know, the autopsy says he didn't. It was complications. Right. So, like, does that now get qualified as a COVID death? Hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think that's very clear. What about poker? Do you think that... I see all the games running at Venetian. The Golden Nugget just opened up. People are swarming back as if, like, very similar to to online. It was like, oh, there's like a wave of online. Now there's like a wave of live poker where it's just like, all of a sudden it's like Venetian's running uh, 5,000 No Limit Hold'em. It's like, what what's going on? I mean, it's only five people. And that, that game had been running underground for like the last month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's no surprise that they're going to go to a safer haven where they don't stand to get robbed or have any existential threats right like you're, you're always going to want a casino to facilitate the game the rake is lower and it's obviously much much safer um but yeah finding five or ten guys that are going to play live at higher stakes not shocking people follow the money man you going i mean i i'm not opposed to it I, i've never been fearful of getting covid tells more i know that part i i just you know it's <laughs> Just like I don't have a fear of driving or flying, um, I don't think that my risk factor is very high. But I am conscientious that there are people in my group that fall under high risk. And 
obviously don't want to like shut myself out from being around them. So it's easy for me to quarantine. Online's going well right now. Like I feel like you quarantine even when there is no quarantine, Burke. I don't think that's entirely true, but I definitely don't like go out of my way to be hanging out on the strip on a Friday night. It's last time you went to the club, Burke. Who knows? Ten years ago. Hopefully longer. <laughs> the club is weird. I feel like you go through phases, right? Like when you're young, the club is cool. It was never cool. For me, the club was super cool. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story, bro. The club was wild in New York City. I was 20 years old. One of my friends lent me his ID to get into the club, right? Go in the club, 20 years old. I was like, oh, this is the most lit thing ever, right? Go in the club, start dancing with, with some shorty, right? She's kind of cool, uh, whatever. So then you guys had a conversation. You determined she was cool. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have like a full blown conversation. Like her group was next to my group on the dance floor. Okay. okay. Right. It was like head sprung by LL Cool J. It was something, something popping. Right? That's that's not who sings head sprung. I shouldn't know that. You no, should. head sprung LL Cool J for sure. Okay, go yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um. Then she's like, she sees me. I see her. We're like, yo, that's what's up. So then we go off to the side a little bit. We start dancing. That's cool. Then she has like a booth, right? So we go to the booth. She ends up kissing me, right? And we're like making out a little bit, whatever. Then she's like, oh, my husband's on the way, mm. right? So I look to this. I look straight, right? It's like this like six foot five black dude who's like clearly going to kill me, I think, right? I'm shook. I'm calling my, my boys, like my gang. I'm like, yo, cuckoo. Like, you know, like, like get over here right now, right? Like, because I think we're about to, like, I think it's about to pop off, right? So he comes, and I'm like, holy shit, why did I come to this club? I'm not even supposed to be here. Like, my whole life is flashing before my eyes, I'm, and I'm, like, getting ready to, like, fight. So he comes, and he's like, yeah, what's up? And I'm like, what's up? <laughs> he looks me dead in the eye, and he's like, it's cool. We're swingers. And I'm like, holy shit. So then I look at my boys and I'm like, nah, it's cool. <laughs> that was my first time in the club. And after that, I always wanted to go back because I didn't know what was going to happen. Sure. Like, sure. that was my first time in the club. That shit was kind of popping, though. That shit, I was, that shit was crazy. Arizona hospitals have been told to activate their emergency plan to prepare for extra beds and staff as coronavirus cases and hospitalizations soar to their highest numbers yet. COVID-19 modelers calculated a spike would likely happen after these stay-at-home orders lifted on May 15th. I don't know, man. I don't know about you, but I'm shook. Like, did we open too early? Is this what is this what's happening? Like, I don't, I don't think that that's a viable way of looking at it. Like, I, I think all we can do is, you know, work in coordination with other nations that have already gone through it, utilize the the ones that were most successful as examples, mm -hmm. and try to move on from there. Uh, I don't know what Arizona's reopening policy was, but it seems like the phasing is the best way. Although judging by Vegas right now, maybe that's not actually going to be a thing. All I know is like all these precautionary measures that seem to be taken upon reopening seem to be unnecessary in the sense that they're not helpful, right? Like five-handed poker versus nine-handed poker probably doesn't make much of a fucking difference. Mm. And, you know, putting up, uh, these these random sneeze guards at blackjack tables or whatever. Like I, I mean, I imagine that this is all for optics 
and to make people feel safer. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that their likelihood of contracting is probably still the same. And, you know, for the vast majority, they're going to fall under the bucket of a carrier, not, uh, not somebody who's of high risk of getting like deathly ill. But at the same token, you know, if you have millions of carriers and tens of thousands of people who are high risk that will die, that extrapolates pretty quickly. So I, I don't really know what the answer is outside of a vaccine. Um, it does seem like we could be more prudent in, I guess, uh, exercising the non-necessities. Like dine-in restaurants aren't a necessity. You can mm. still just do takeout, mm. and you should. Casinos, I, I don't know what to say because like they're the lifeblood of Vegas. Without them, I don't know how long we, we last. We don't have state tax. Uh, so it's like most of that is coming through the casinos. And with them being on full-blown shutdown, it's tough. But the problem is, is now we become the epicenter of uh, kind of like disease. Yeah, it's a hot spot. People fly in, they fly out, they they take it with them, they give it to their elders, whatever. It's like Florida. You, did you see, um, so for in Florida, they track people's phone. Like, I don't know, some CIA shit, but uh, they did it through Bluetooth. And what happened is they during spring break, they, they like saw the people that came into like Fort Lauderdale, Miami Beach, all these people. And then when spring break finished, they saw where all these people went. And this was like during the, the shutdown. In fact, mm -hmm. they just didn't obey it. So all these people came in, interacted together on the beach and then spread back to to their respective homes. And when you saw where they were, they were all over America. Yeah. So I think that's exactly what's going to happen in Vegas. It's like everybody comes to Vegas, gambles, have fun, go to the club, meet some swingers. Then they go back home and they're back with their wives. And like, that's crazy. I saw this article and it was like, it was like brain caution fatigue where it's like, you're just tired of having to like wash your hands a million times, having to, do all these things that and you, eventually you just like get tired what are your thoughts on that i feel like that's true like at some point you just get tired like people want to live a normal life well, i think it doesn't help that the data is not really supporting all these movements right like uh, effectively if you can't get everyone to comply the benefits are negligible and at that point it becomes such a massive inconvenience to the group that those who are complying are just basically taking on unnecessary stress for almost no positive gain. Is that how you feel? I mean, I feel that way in the sense that it's an all or nothing proposition. Uh, I don't necessarily feel that way in the sense that I think it's useless or unnecessary. I think that the, uh, you know, these protocols are put in place for a reason and they probably do have big benefits to them when you can get mass compliance. But I don't think we're anywhere. I mean, we can't agree on anything in this nation. Do you think at the end of the day, the mayor of, of Las Vegas ended up winning this argument? No, I don't think so. Uh, she was just still too early. Like, even if she somehow lands on the right side of history, like three years from now, we find out that this disease wasn't very deadly. I don't think that she gets to say like, see, I told you, we should have just opened up. We crippled our economy for no good reason. Like, that's crazy. We are only operating off limited, limited information mm -hmm. of what we have available now. And the information she has available is the same information all of us have available. And none of it points to the fact that we should just wide scale open back up and let people get sick. I'm still concerned over the fact that I, I don't 
I don't know the difference now between like a phase one open and a phase four open because it seems like this phase one open is just an open. Like, well, I Vegas think... definitely seems to be different. It's just like we're just open. Like, I, I mean, the I casinos make it so, right? Like the casinos are unlike almost anything else nationwide. Mm. So, and also the protest advance things a lot, right? We basically have a test case in all of these protesters because they're in mass crowds. I mean, this is this is going to probably be what determines how sports scale moving forward. We're just going to see like what the uptick is with all the mass protesting. I think there has the to be an uptick. Six, six to ten weeks. Yeah, but is how significant, mm-hmm. right? Because we saw hundreds of thousands of people protesting. And if it only moves the needle a couple percent, then maybe it's not that big of a deal. But a couple percent of like all the millions of people that are in this country, is, it's it's a lot of people. Yeah, but again, you have to. We, we have to get back to the crux of all this, right? Do you, All right, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the reason all these precautionary measures are being taken place is because of the risk of people dying or the risk of uh, depleting our medical resources? Mm. I mean, they go hand in hand, though. You deplete the resources, people, more people die. Yes, but that's that, that wasn't the way I was phrasing the question. People dying of COVID or because we run a risk of depleting resources? I think it's the first one first. It's it's not. It's the latter. Right? Okay, go ahead. The fact that people can potentially die from a flu doesn't make that big of a difference to the nation as a whole. Again, if we're looking at 1% death rates, that's in line with what we would see with the flu mm-hmm. or 0.1%, whatever it is. Uh, in any event, the reason why this is being taken so seriously is because there's no preemptive measures that can, can be taken since it's asymptomatic. There's no vaccine in place that can prevent wide-scale spread but most importantly what we're trying to avoid happen is medical resources being depleted to the point where now people with treatable diseases can't be treated and they die Mm. right because that's where it becomes a crime upon humanity when medical attention isn't viable for the everyman right people dying from the flu is a thing it's just going to happen that's not what all this preventive measure, in my opinion, is being taken for. It may be framed that way in order to tactically get people to comply. But the fact of the matter is, what we're really concerned about is the infrastructure of our medical resources and not collapsing them from the top down, right? We want people to still have healthy pregnancies. We want people to still be able to recover from wounds or uh, brutal injuries or other illnesses that will require the resources of a hospital being able to turn their attention to that. And if we're just littered with COVID patients that vary from life-threatening to inconveniently or inconveniently sick, but there's no way to really tell the difference on the onset, everything just crumbles. How many kids do you think will be named COVID this? this uh... I hope zero. I, I, it's not you... going to be zero. <laughs> COVID's kind of a cool name, though. It's like, Is it? It's like young COVID. It's like... Is it? COVID Berkey? I could see it. No. You don't think so? Who? I think I think people are going to be named po- COVID. For sure. were, were people named mumps and measles? <laughs> it's just like, what of, it doesn't sound about? as cool, though, but I'm sure there's... SARS? Do you think there's a kid out there named SARS? Hell yeah. At least his nickname is definitely SARS. <laughs> like, for sure. I mean, look, he's going to be named COVID because he was, like, made during COVID, you know? And then he's going he, to be fine, bro. I'd like to meet the kid out there named HIV or hit or AIDS. I'm going to look it up. Don't make me look it up, bro. Come on, man. Like, 
it, it's it's just cool. look. I get it. People are stupid, but this is this is next level. I take the over on 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 one kid being. Yeah, obviously, I'll take the over <laughs> on one on anything. Oh man! All right, did you watch the Oprah show? I did. Yeah. What'd you think? Which what's your overall feeling on the Oprah show? Like 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 not analysis, just yeah, like yeah. what'd you think? Like, uh, I thought it was great. I mean, it was it was the call to arms that I was asking for mm. to display a lot of very intelligent, uh, prominent members of the black community. But I love the idea of a panel. I hate the way that it was, it was done. Me too. Let me explain why. Okay. Now for sure. I know the myth, you know, the myth of Oprah's house, right? Mm -mm. Nobody's allowed into Oprah's house except one person. Okay. Maya Angelou. Okay. That's true. And it was, and it's a fact because yesterday she had the opportunity to have a panel in her house mm -hmm. and they all webcammed in. So yeah. clearly it's a fact now. Like I, I am convinced that no one's allowed in Oprah's house unless it's Maya Angelou. Sure. And now the whole world knows because she could have had a panel. She could have had, it's, it's Oprah, man. She could have had everyone behind the screen in her house. She could have flew people in. She could have given all of them a civic and threw them all in her house and said, you stand there, you stand there, you stand there. Instead, she was like, no, Maya Angelou's upstairs. You can't come inside. <laughs> and that's it. Now sit behind that webcam and I'll put you up on the bigger screen when it's your turn to talk. And now we get to talk about it. Yeah, I thought the, the quality was poor. Uh, I think that like, I don't care that they weren't there, but every one of them should have had a camera. Mm. Like it should have been pretty standardized. Every one of them should have been mic'd. Every one of them should have been had a camera. Like it wouldn't have been that hard to pull off. The production quality was relatively low. It was tough in that regard. But more importantly, due to the fact that it was just a Zoom call uh, and it was done in a manner where there weren't many lower thirds, it just wasn't a good production. Uh, everybody kind of blended in. I'm not familiar with these people, right? Mm -hmm. So the people that stood out to me were the people who interest me upon their introduction the most, right? So it's like there was a I, – I can't recall her name, but she was a politician. But anyway, like they interest me the most because I obviously already had some inclination as to who they were. I've heard them speak before. And now I'm like just waiting for them to talk. But – it was very hard to follow. She would pose a general question and, you know, direct it at, at somebody and it's just jumping back and forth from person to person. And I'm not really getting a unified message here, right? I'm just getting each individual uh, account of like what's been happening. And honestly, like from, from that vantage point, what resonated with me the most is it was super emotional, right? Like it was basically two hours of just hearing the hurt and pain of a particular community and how much this uh i guess protest or or um celebration of george floyd's that uh, maybe that's the wrong phrasing for it. whatever this whole event that's taking place right now is just kind of like a cry for change mm -hmm. and like that I, I i understand and i resonate with but it seemed like a great opportunity to platform these people and dig a lot deeper to the point where I could hear a strong call to action. Like that was the whole framing of last night. It's like, well, what do we do now? Right. I think even the title was like, um, where do we go next? Or, yeah. Where do we go next? Or something like that. And I didn't, I didn't walk away with that answer. Like I didn't feel any more knowledgeable. Well, part two is today. So I'm going to pass on your recommendations to Oprah. 
and I'm sure that sure. Uh, things will be better for you today. Right. Um, but I do have a list of people that she did have on. But before we even get to that, there was this one major clip that's be that started going viral uh, from Kimberly Jones, mm -hmm. and she's just like expressing what a lot of people feel. We don't own anything. There is, Trevor Noah said it so beautifully last night. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. So the social contract is broken. You broke the contract when for 400 years we played your game and built your wealth. You broke the contracts and they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. I think the phrasing that Kimberly used there is really important. So not revenge, but equality. And I think a lot of people can appreciate that. And I think a lot of people like Van Jones and, and have said, I think we're kind of lucky that like the black community has been pretty patient as well. Like they're both patient and they don't want revenge. I think I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, like people say like, Yo, we should get some revenge on all these people that mistreated us for so long. What what were your what was your takeaway on uh well, Kimberly Jones there? So I, I think obviously that's accurate, but the other thing is that revenge is difficult to enact whenever you are a five to one minority. Mm. So like there just isn't the numbers. And this is the same problem that persists with having sweeping change at a governmental level. It's like they're just very, very powerful. Um, Van Jones is actually in a documentary on Netflix called the 13th and it's about the 13th amendment, the abolishment of slavery and how, uh, it was really just reframed, mm -hmm. uh, more so than abolished. Um, basically there is this clause that says, you know, nobody shall be enslaved with the exception of criminals. Correct. And, you know, that just leads to the entire, um, over criminalization of, mainly minorities but if we want to make it a socio-economical conversation of the impoverished and uh you know it's a fascinating film to watch because though it has racial undertones and it's very clear where it systemically begins uh it really has morphed and evolved into big business and has a lot of uh you know money behind it and it, it really is attacking the impoverished in the nation I want to move over to Stacey Adams. She talks a little bit about the disproportion with COVID of the black people, minorities versus the white people. Uh, she was the author of Our Time Is Now. The disproportion, I think, is is like when we're talking about health now, like now we're talking about more than just like economics and racism and all these things. But it's like these people are just dying at a higher frequency and they're saying like, this is what we're talking about. Like, we don't get a fair shake in anything. Even when there is a pandemic, we suffer more. And I think a lot of people say like, oh, maybe you're just like predisposed. You have higher diabetes and all these things. And we spoke about this earlier. It's like, it's like, they, yeah, they, they, if the, the argument is like they have higher type two diabetes. Well, why is that? Because that comes from a certain, uh, intake of food, probably lower, lower priced food, less, less nu nutritionally dense, that of which is just cheaper, that of which they can afford. So it goes like pretty far down this rabbit hole. But I wanted to ask you like this disproportion of COVID, 
what's your take on it before we close the COVID talk? I, I mean, it's the same conversation we've been having, right? This is a socioeconomic one. Mm. There's wealth inequality and poor people are going to be heavily affected by something like this for a few reasons. One, they don't have access to as much medical care as people with money. Two, they're forced to take all of the grunt work jobs that have to persist through a pandemic in order to make ends meet. So they're going to be more exposed and less protected. And then three, even if they aren't working, they still have to rely upon community in order to survive. So collectively, they're all going to be heavily exposed to one another. And again, doubling back, they don't have the proper medical care in order to survive. So they don't have the luxury of quarantining effectively. And when I say they, I'm saying impoverished people. Like this isn't specifically a race issue. It just disproportionately affects minorities because of a lot of other systemic issues we have in place. And I do want to talk about that. So the last the last clip was Nicole Hannah-Jones. She is a Pulitzer winner and the founder of the 1619 Project. She's going to talk about uh, effectively the wealth gap, which is like what we're talking about now. So let's play Nicole's Hannah-Jones video. There was some devastating data that came out uh, earlier this week that said uh, Black Americans' wealth has been stagnant for 70 years that it would take the combined wealth of 11 and a half black families to equal the wealth of one white family. And that attending college does absolutely nothing to mitigate that wealth gap. So black people who do everything right, get a college degree, have less wealth than white Americans who have not even completed high school. So when we look at that type of gap, so much of your crime that we're trying to solve is an issue of poverty where uh, Professor Sandy Darity and um, Derek Hamilton say there is nothing that Black people can do on their own to mitigate the wealth gap, that we can do everything right and it will not change the wealth gap one bit. We can't just be talking about policing. If we're going to talk about that, we also need to be trying to put forth an economic agenda that would have to include reparations. Because what are your thoughts on payment retribution? Uh, I don't know how that played out with the concentration camps, but I imagine not well mm -hmm. look nobody's gonna go for that right like the people who are making the policies are the ones who are at the top of the wealth gap mm -hmm. they're not suddenly gonna say like sure let me throw some money at the problem um also like though that sounds nice it's just impractical uh we need to figure out a more holistic solution to wealth inequality because she's not she's not wrong in anything that she says but it's also not painting the full picture, mm -hmm. right? Like when you're talking about that lower tier of people living below the poverty line, yes, it, it may be concentrated towards black people, but it's all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And all of them also possess that low ceiling. So it's not like if you're below the poverty line and white, your ceiling is 11 and a half times that of, uh, a black person who's below the poverty line, right? Like, yes, on average, on the aggregate, you're going to see more prosperity with the people who have the privilege. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, and we need to figure out ways to disperse this and make things a lot more level across the board. But when we talk about just forcefully redistributing wealth in that capacity, um, I, I think that it's a Band-Aid more than a solution. Uh, I don't know what the ultimate outcome is. I think that, you know, progressive policies are looking more in this direction. 
I think it's, you know, kind of unfortunate we got stuck with Biden as a candidate. Um, I know people, you know, are very taboo on the word socialism and things like that. But uh, at some point, we have to counter capitalism, at least slightly, because we've had too many decades of crony capitalism being presented as uh, the American dream and nothing to check or balance that. So I'm not saying that we should implement a socialistic uh, economic policy or anything along those lines. But when you talk about like Yang speaking in terms of UBI or some of the social programs that Bernie Sanders was interested in, it, it raises the floor, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot more important to raise the floor of everybody's well-being than it is to try to increase the ceiling or even worse, I guess, increase one man's ceiling by lowering another man's. That's true socialism. That's where the issue comes into play, where everybody's going to say, stop, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with you having a greater outlook of prosperity by me limiting mine. Mm -hmm. We all want to get to the point where we feel limitless, right? What we should all be rallying behind is saying, I'm not okay that your floor is poverty. Let me ask you some questions. As a business owner, hat. Let's say, for example, there is another training site owned by a black person. And the whole community starts pushing that training site because mm -hmm. that person is black. But that person is... Uh, in your opinion, quality of product is not as high as your quality of product. Would you be against that? Uh, what do you mean by would I be against it? Would you feel as if that person shouldn't deserve the exposure because their product is not high, but they're only getting the exposure because we're in a time. Yeah, I understand. They're black. Uh, um, I'm, I'm always against marketing ploys that are dishonest. Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be against, you know, relative success being distributed. What I'd be against is if there was some sort of like cap put on what I was able to do in order to ensure that another site was able to operate on the level with me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I wouldn't want like restrictions of some sort where it's like, well, you're only allowed to make, X amount of content of or X amount of dollars or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, I think that this is a, a, a framing of, I think people really misunderstand. Like if you look at a lot of like what Sanders policies were, what, what Yang was trending towards Yang specifically, he was, he was very forthright uh, and forward thinking in the sense that he's trying to solve problems that don't yet quite exist, but are inevitable. And all of that is born out of the idea of we need to elevate the floor, right? So these social programs that are attempting to make life a lot more level, it's not making it level in the sense of I want to reduce what you can ultimately achieve and elevate what I'm going to achieve on the aggregate. Instead, what it's saying is I need your support as the 1% to boost me up to the point where I can function and maybe find myself in the middle somewhere, right? So really, I think like all of these platforms are designed to just bring up what the bottom of 
of our impoverished look like. You know what I mean? Like raise the poverty line in essence, ensure that we don't have people living beneath it. And yes, that's going to take a hit to the top a little bit, but it doesn't like it, it doesn't ultimately curb what they're capable of, right? There are no bounds to what Amazon can do. Amazon could eventually suck up every dollar on earth, right? Maybe, probably not. Mm. But like potentially speaking, like if it continues its exponential growth, there's a chance that like the world could just effectively be owned by Amazon, right? Now, if we continually increased his tax rate along the way, what's the difference, right? If you end up with all of the pie anyway, what's the difference if you were redistributing 70% of it along the way, right? All you're doing is ensuring that you have a consumer base to continually funnel back into your pie. So like, I don't really see it ever as a limiting growth factor on those who are fast-tracked towards the top. Instead, I see it as propping up the bottom to a degree where we have more consumers worldwide, where we, or at least nationwide. We have a higher quality of life, which is what we market this country as, right? It's the American dream. Because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push back only because you made the argument of incentive before Mm -hmm. under this premise that you're saying, they're just not incentivized to do that. Who's they? Amazon, Apple, uh, Facebook. It shouldn't be up to them. This should be up to policymakers. I see. Right. The problem is, is that right now with lobbyists and all these other manipulative factors, they have their hands, they being the conglomerates, have their hands uh, too deep into the cookie jar. We talked about this on the podcast earlier this year. I said the winners of COVID were going to be Apple, Facebook, Google, mm-hmm. right? I just saw a tweet this morning that said the five highest rising stocks in the last three and a half months, Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. Shocking. So what? what you, small businesses? You, everyone should 44% listen. of small businesses went out of business. That's crazy. Right? This just furthers the gap. Right. So if that's the case, we have to tether that in some... There has to be... It's not about limiting the growth, right? It's about retarding the growth to a point where it is tethered back so that it can't scale out of control, right? It needs to slow as you start to reach certain heights so that you aren't just vacuuming off the the ocean floor. You have to prop up the bottom. And the only way to do that is to have proper social programs, to have a properly funded government that is looking to do, you know, I think the, the whole concept of small government from an economic standpoint that we've been preaching for the last 50, 60, 70 years is just no longer practical in a country this size that has this much of an income gap. And to be quite frank, we haven't had a small government in decades, right? Like people point to Reagan as being the last one, but even still all the way back to the 80s, this is, you know, 1980 he got elected. So 30 or 40 years ago, even pointing all the way back to that, were we really that small, right? Because like even just watching a little bit of this 13th, I was seeing uh, a lot of like the policy that took place. I was a baby, so I don't, I don't remember. You know, I'm not that studied on it. But even then, a lot of like what was taking place economically was just preying upon these other policies that he was trying to push through, like the war on drugs, mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, effectively industrializing the prison system. So it was just like, it was almost like a short-term thing where it's like, actually, the government is going into business in a lot of ways in these capacities so that it can continue to incur more revenue. What's your take on that, on the for-profit prisons? Obviously, it's a travesty, right? Because it's being manipulated through bureaucratic policy. And what's happening is now privatized business is canoodling with federal government. And they're effectively scratching each other's backs mm -hmm. where they're just both bringing in money hand over fist and it's the citizens who are taking a bath. So none of that money is being redistributed. It's all being sucked out of the community. And off the back end of it, they're serving time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's a real shame when it goes into the juvenile system as well because it's like, you know, these, these juveniles go to the court and then they just like barely get like they shouldn't be sent to a juvenile system. They should be sent to like rehab. They should be sent to um, some sort of other form that's not just like snap juvie, snap juvie, snap juvie. Yeah. And like now that juvenile system, which is a for-profit system, makes piles of money the longer they're in there. Sure. And they're, a lot of the times they're supposed to be getting like a probation hearing or something like that every every small number of time. And then they just like that gets pushed back. Now the longer they're in there, the more money that, that gets in. Now, that system sometimes has like an under the table deal with the judges and the judges get paid. And then it's kind of a it's kind of a, a, a real shame. I think we have. To this is why I'm talking about crony capitalism, because effectively what we've built in it or what we've built is essentially a mob society where we've employed the federal government to become the mob boss. And like, you know, I don't know enough about uh, crime reform and, and things of that nature. But when you're talking about juveniles, if they didn't commit some sort of heinous uh, violent crime, I can't fathom putting them in prison. Okay. I don't want to see this turn into a swept under the rug issue where it's just like, this has been plaguing us for 60 years plus. It honestly doesn't feel like it's going away. Like the protests are still going and it's like, yeah, we don't see them. Like we're like the numbers are still there. Like the news coverage and the rioting and all that stuff has died down a little bit, but the numbers of people out on the street are still present. Yeah. And I think that's great. Um, but I still don't know what action is going to be taking place. And like, you know, personally, like, I don't want to hear any more rhetoric out of me. I don't want to hear any more rhetoric out of people like me. Like I get a lot of joy out of watching Trevor Noah mm -hmm. because I feel like he's a big voice on this. And I yeah. feel like he lends a platform to empower other people to be big voices. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that more of that's not coming from the white community. Like it's not that hard to find somebody promoting the Proud Boys and hearing from a hate group like that. But for some God unknown reason, I'm just not hearing from, from black leaders. And it's not that they're not speaking. It's not that they're not out there. It's just they're not in the common outlets that I would personally come across. Like what? Like podcasts? Yeah, I mean, podcasts is the easiest thing to point to because I think it, I think it really displays like uh, high intellectuals, right? Um, and there are certain people that we've just given credentials to. Um, but even outside of podcasts, like more documentaries like the 13th, I think. Mm. Like that's a fascinating thing. It's easy to get behind. It's easy to watch. Docs are, are great. The issue with documentaries, obviously, is they're always slanted in some sort of capacity towards bias. But, you know, if you watch it with the vein of do your own research, I think that's really good. 
Uh, I also just think there needs to be more like more cross debate. And maybe that's why I'm really calling for these platforms, right? Like I hate Ben Shapiro. I think he is a bad faith actor to the core. I think he is just absolutely toxic in nature, but I would love for him to uh, have somebody of relevance from the black community on there and tell them to their face why they're wrong about economic reform, why they're wrong about police reform, why they're wrong about all these things that he so confidently touts to his echo chamber, mm -hmm. right? So I guess like, I just want to see way more of that. And I know there's no incentive from one side of this coin to do that, but it's getting bad in the sense that now I see, uh, you know, the handful of people who are willing to be weaponized the other direction start to take these platforms and uh, effectively be like a, a person of color ally, right? So I saw this um, Ruben report. Uh, I, I've just been trying to watch as much both sides material as I possibly can. Yeah. And I had no idea what the Ruben report was or who he was. Three minutes in, obviously, it's just like this guy has no business having a voice. Um, but he had on this former police officer who's black. And the framework is the Black Lives Movement is garbage basically like it's it's a it's a false flag it's uh inflammatory narrative that is founded really in nothing and this guy who's being given a platform is basically weaponizing the fact that he's conservative and black and therefore the black lives movement doesn't speak for all people of color it's like okay that seems like a reasonable stance for me to start and listen to another side Okay. And then I watched the interview and this guy just speaks in fallacies the entire way through to basically, from what I can tell, set up a political run of some sort, right? All of his messaging was speaking to middle America, middle white America, basically saying like, no, you're right. They're overreacting. We need police. He's talking about like the problems with drugs and the problems with petty theft and petty crimes and why it's good to be putting all these people. He's basically taking that stance from the 80s of I'll be tough on crime, right? And he's doing it with the leverage of I grew up in the hood. My, my stepdad was a crack addict who died from a heroin overdose. I have uh, a black friend. Right. 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 But like it's way different when you are that black friend, mm. right? So he's 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 displaying this now as I get to be an authority, right? right? And this is, I, I put out a tweet and I said like, you know, I see this a lot in the fitness industry um, and it's easy to identify there. It's a lot more difficult when you're talking about these sensitive issues because we're not very particular about who we grant authority to. If you have high EQ and know how to speak to a crowd in a slanted way, where it's not obvious to them. If you just watch this and you aren't necessarily looking for these fallacies and uh, these these biased like points of view that are clearly directing you, you'll you'll look past it. Well, I mean, the truth is that it's on us too. We want to hear people that are on our on, have the viewpoint that we already have, right. and then just like cling on to that and say like we're right. And Ben agrees with us. Exactly. You know, like, and Ben is smart. Right. Ben so that, that's what I mean. This person becomes a point of authority. Mm. Right. So it's easy to point to this guy. I think his name, uh, his last name was Tatum. Uh, it's easy to say, like, well, this guy Tatum agrees with everything that I'm saying. 
in the sense that you know these these rioters and looters and protesters are all bad actors and they're bringing the country down and black people don't actually have it that bad and uh poor people don't actually have it that bad where else in the world would you rather be poor than in the united states of america and right. you know uh and it's just like if you listen to the rhetoric that this guy is spewing it's all founded in nothing mm -hmm. right it's literally just founded in i worked the beat and criminals were black and people deserve to be in jail when they commit crimes and they lean so heavily so heavily on the destruction of property being like one of the most egregious crimes that can be committed right and it's just like what are we talking about here we're seeing lives get destroyed day in and day out by a myriad of problems right poverty being at the top of the list so it's just like to suddenly shift the focus to like, you know, drug addicts deserve to be in jail. I, I can't tell you how much rhetoric I've seen over the last week. Again, like just actively trying to search the other side. How much stuff I've seen portrayed where it's like George Floyd was a drug addict. He deserved to die. Right. It's like, what if he was a drug addict? Who the fuck cares? Let me ask you this question because I think I think we're starting to see the problems. When it comes to people with platforms, do you find a problem with news in general? Because like, I think a lot of these platforms like Ben Shapiro, all these people, like the news itself, I think has issues mm -hmm. in, in two parts. One, a lot of people like to look at the CNN versus CNN versus Fox, right? And what we're looking at is two bigger, like two big giants trying to fight for like the collective thought yeah. process, right? Yeah, yeah. But there's a problem underneath that, right? And the problem underneath that is that there is no more like local coverage mm. of anything, right? And what we're finding is that local coverage tends to uncover most of the 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 big issues right so when there is like corruption in the police department when there is uh r kelly like that was the chicago sun times like what i'm saying is the problem with news do you think it's a the the two part problem of like fox news versus cnn and now we just need to go and see something else on youtube or is it a systemic problem where it's from the ground up because we're losing the local news that are often feeding up the food chain, right? To CNN and Fox and things like that. Because we're losing that, do you think that is one, why we're going to YouTube and two, why we're losing some of the, the ability to not be biased? I think like when you're talking about CNN versus Fox News and things like that, it's it's not what you're framing it as. They're not trying to speak to the collective. They're trying to speak no. They're to, trying to sway a collective. No, they're not. Okay, go ahead. They're speaking to their echo chamber and they're trying to catch fringe people who are undecided. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So, identity politics are probably the root of most evils in this country. But identity politics exist because we allow so many of these differences to persist in fugazi truths right mm -hmm. so we don't have third-party independent sources that are are willing to flesh out actual truths 
Instead, truth is kind of just a commodity and it's framed by the storyteller in a lot of ways. So I think like active sources like Snopes and Politico and these third party entities on the internet that are willing to fact check stuff. I think those, they, they need to be brought to scale, right? They need to be brought to scale and uh, outlets need to be held accountable based upon these third-party fact-checking entities, right? Currently, those standards are insanely low and narratives are being pushed far more than facts or, you know, any sort of like message that is nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of money in partisanship right now, right? The amount of undecideds are becoming fewer and fewer, which is insane because to me, all that says is the amount of intelligent people are somehow decreasing. It's very difficult in my mind to balance being intelligent and then find pride in choosing a party line, right? Why? Because uh, I feel like if you're intelligent, then you begin to question things somewhere throughout your life. And through that questioning process, you begin to challenge pride and tribalism, right? I understand wanting to closely identify with something, but both of these parties are so off on delivering some sort of packaged message that uh, I think that you know a, a vast majority of us can get behind. It just seems crazy to identify with pride to something that you may ultimately disagree with, right? And there are like here's the thing. Are we going to vote for Biden in November? Sure. But it's a vote against Trump. It's not a vote for this guy. I don't think any of us with any you know, rational thinking imagine that this guy is going to be a good president. Just like I imagine a lot of the reason why Trump got elected was because it was a vote against Hillary. Correct. Right. But there will be Democrats who will rally behind Biden as if he's his grand, as if they're his grandfather simply because he wears blue. Hmm. And this just doesn't align to me with rational thinking. Well, the thing is, like, that, that's part of the party uh, situation where it's like, you got me, I got you. Where it's like, if you don't got me and I win this thing, like, right. I might not get, I might not endorse you on your next right. Uh, run. Right. So they're incentivized to, that's why there's, it's like a gang. It's like, yeah. it's, it's a giant, it's a giant game of irrational actors. Right. So that that's ultimately what it, if like people like Nate Silver, who are great at, at the predictive model and are doing all of the hard work to the stats and things of that line, it, it wouldn't take much, I'm sure, for him to either think in this capacity or know somebody who could, who could begin to map out politics through the, the lens of game theory. It would be a very short process before they realized it just broke, because the problem is that the rules aren't finite. Right, the rules are bendable and malleable, depend upon what your network looks like and whose back you've scratched, and all of this corruption is just leading to a very unfair system from the bottom up. That's why I'm saying, again, circling all the way back to the message I keep delivering, is at the end of the day, whatever policies we're all voting upon, whenever we get out to the booths and we're trying to put people in power, we need to find those that are willing to disrupt. To the point of propping up the floor, not those 
who are going to give us a fake message of tearing down the top because that doesn't work, right? That'll always fail because there's too much money at the top to allow that to happen. Anybody who runs for office that says, I'm going to increase capital gains tax and I'm going to increase the tax on the 1% and I'm going to eliminate billionaires in the country. And I'm speaking to Bernie in this instance because mm -hmm. I think this is where he fucked up, right? Anybody who runs on that platform is not only doing themselves a disservice, they're being dishonest because there's way too much red tape to allow that to happen. But if you package it and message it in such a way where it's, I'm going to promote policies that are going to take some from those who are empowered in this country. I'm going to reduce the power and the, and the wealth of the absolute top in order to build our bottom and raise the ecosystem of the United States. The country will rally, right? There is no, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. And maybe it'll take a Republican actually to message this way, which will probably never happen. No. But in my head, there's no way that middle to upper middle class wouldn't look at that and say, this doesn't affect us at all in the negative. And if anything, it affects us in the positive because now we build a stronger consumer base. Now we build uh, a stronger working class. And all of these are attributes to us in the middle to upper middle class who are trying to rise to the elite, right? Only the elite should be affected. And even they should kind of look at it through the same framework, right? When Bezos looks at that equation, it's just like, okay, fine. I Why mean, is there such a difference then, you think, between people like Bill Gates versus other people that are also billionaires that don't have that same, like they don't feel the same way? Like, right. Bill Gates is like, yeah, sure. I don't want to pay a bunch of taxes, but I'll pay them. Right. Um, whereas like other people are like, no, I'm going to move my money to Panama and you're not going to get it. Gaming the system, right? It's like at the end of the day, most of those people got super wealthy because they were able to win a game. I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, I was having this question, I think, uh, a couple of days ago. Do you think there is a billionaire today that got it all clean? Yeah. Yeah. Just by law of averages, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, like I look at a guy. You hesitated like, though. Well, because I, I just, I just know. I mean, define clean, right? Yeah, right, right. It's like not stepping on someone. It, it's else's. it's similar to what we're talking about with crime, mm -hmm. right? Like if you broaden the scope of crime to being so vast that petty theft and uh, purchasing drugs and all this other stuff is considered a crime then yeah, most everyone's a criminal. Just like if you broaden the scope of what you consider to be clean in making money to include like anything that involves earning off of the loss of someone else, then yeah, no, nobody, nobody became a billionaire cleanly. But I look at a guy like Mark Cuban and I would say that he probably mostly did it right. He may have a couple skeletons in his closet, but I imagine- A little dirty deal on Shark Tank, you know? Never hurt nobody. Maybe. I, I guess like my definition would be, um, you know, how many people became billionaires without uh, corruption. Right. And at that point, like, I think it's a low percentage. I think we have some topics, man, for the, for the rest of the season. Uh, we have prison reform. 
are billionaires really billionaires? You need to chill out, man. I don't <laughs> have this much time to be read. I need a team. Newspapers, you know, the fall of newspapers. The, the real reason why the, new, the newspapers have disappeared is because they're owned by hedge funds. And the hedge funds have cut all the employees to increase the margins. And now we're here. All right. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to let you a little bit. I'm going to let you breathe a little bit, you know. You, you you've been on this for 55 weeks now. I'm going to bring a guest. I want to invite high stakes female reg. I'm going to let you all watch a short clip as an introduction. Mommy want a big pot. What do you say? Mommy want a big pot. What do you what do you say? I got my own hype. Yeah, you have, a, you, have, you have your own hype video. Thanks. I feel honored. All right. Well, you are the first person to that I know that has come out of Minnesota. All right. I'm going to pull up one of your tweets, D-Moon. So if you're more outraged by the rioting and looting than you are of the murder of George Floyd, go fuck yourself. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. 854 likes, 79 retweets. One of your more popular tweets recently. <laughs> also, one of my more least popular tweets as well. Got a lot of uh, rage coming back at that one, but I expected that, so that's fine. Why do you think that is? Because um, I think, I don't know, people think that they have a right to be upset about like looting or whatever. They don't see it as like two separate things. Um, I think there's just a lot of ignorant people. And that, like the tweet really, it came from, I was actually in Minnesota when the George Floyd incident happened. And like a lot of the conversation in Minnesota, it was the focus was more on like, I can't believe they looted that target. And I can't believe that they, you know, burned their stuff down. And this was in the very beginning. This was like before the looting and the rioting even got like big. It was like very in the very beginning. Um, and it was really irritating me. I was like, why is this? Why are we having more conversations about this? And we are about the fact that the guy was fucking murdered, mm. like in your state. And it's this is clearly a problem. And so um I found myself getting like increasingly irritated by the frequency that that was where the conversation was, you know, focused on. Talk to me about the pulse of, of, of the state and the pulse of the city in that situation. You're saying most people, did they just like not care or what? Well, you, know, you have to understand like Minnesota is kind of weird because in general, the like Twin Cities metro area is generally very like liberal. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, where I'm from, it's a more rural community and um, just a very different vibe. Like a you know, 60 miles south, um, surrounded by cornfields, you know, towns of like, I, my husband grew up in a town of 200 people. I grew up in a town of 2000 people. So it's very different than like, you know, when you see Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, so I felt like in the smaller communities, they tend to be a little bit more, uh, conservative. Um, and that was where I was when all this happened. So the people that I was interacting with, a lot of their conversations were not about like, you know, how horrible this is. I mean, it was, it was acknowledged it was horrible, but it just, the conversation very quickly would go to like, you know, it's not accomplishing anything for them to, you know, burn things and build things or whatever. So Minnesota's kind of weird because it's like, you know, some parts are very liberal, some are very conservative. I happen to be in the more conservative part. So um, it's kind of a weird place because it's very split. Where do you fall, I guess, on the line? Because like you grew up there, your husband grew up there. Um, where do you fall in that line? Just, just to like, get an idea like are you falling like a little bit more left um, or you falling? I definitely fall more towards liberal but I also can kind of um before I was exposed to poker like 
I was more in kind of, I feel like almost a small town Minnesota mentality. So I can see where some of those thought processes are coming from. Um, because, you know, without my exposure to poker, I think that that's, I probably would have like stayed on that path. That's probably where my, my mindset would have been, uh, as well, but I'm definitely, uh, um, because of poker, I, I'm like I feel like I'm constantly challenged. I'm constantly trying to grow, and I've, I've definitely become more like um, open-minded, and I would say definitely more like the liberal spectrum, especially relative to you know the, where I grew up. What about the race issue? Do 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 you find that there is a race issue? Do you find it to be a more economic issue? What both you and like where you're from, where where does that where does that stand? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely think there is a race issue. I think that. A lot of people where I'm from, they're not even aware that there's as big of a race issue as there is. You know, it's like everyone wants to be like, oh, no, it's equal. Like, you know, I have a black friend, you know, and they don't really like understand and see like the, you know, systemic like racism and how, you know, how in like ingrained it is and just into like our culture and our, you know, police and just economics and everything. Um, So I think that there's generally you know, sometimes, especially in those small communities, like a lack of understanding of that. And I think that that's one thing that I am proud of myself for is I think because I understand I've been there and I've like, I understand their thinking because it's kind of the way that I was raised and grew up, but I've also been on the other end where I've been like challenged or whatever. I think that I'm sometimes a good go-between where I can uh, facilitate conversations between both sides. And you know, that tweet, I almost like, there's a part of me that afterwards I was like, mm, Am I just like, instead of engaging in a productive conversation that can actually be helpful, I'm just saying like, go fuck yourself. Like, is that the best way to initiate change? Like, maybe not. It was, you know, at the same time, it came from a place of like legit anger and just like rage tilting, like go fuck yourself. Like, uh, so. Like what was some of the feedback that, that upset you? I was shocked by how many people were just like, took that as me saying, fuck the police or, Mm. you know, took that as me saying that I don't care about the business owners, you know, and, 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 and that like, wasn't my intention at all. Of course I care about like business owners. Like, of course I'm, you know, sorry that somebody who's worked, you know, to have something in their life is like that that's damaged and, you know, no, I don't like wish that on anybody. I don't, and I'm not saying that that's like, you know, yeah, you should just go out and like build burn or like burn buildings, you know, but I think that focusing on that is just taken away from the much bigger issue. And, and also I think that there's a place where like, who's to say how were people grieve and they rage for in their own ways. And like, I don't know what they're experiencing. I, I haven't been discriminated against my entire life and told that I'm not as valuable as somebody else. Like, I don't know what that feels like. So I don't know how, what the proper outlet for that is. And I don't feel like I'm, you know, I don't feel like other people should be saying that, but I got a lot of people who would just like took it as me being like, Oh, you know, yeah, fuck the business owners, fuck those guys. Like, you know, and that's, that's not at all what I was trying to say. What's your stance on that? Like the discriminating, uh, like there's a lot of women in poker that feel like they're discriminated in poker. Do you, have you ever felt that way? I, I feel like you just like hang as like one of the guys, but I'm not necessarily sure. Yeah, I always, I feel like I have to be careful answering this question um, because I personally don't feel like I've had, I feel like I've had generally very positive experiences in poker, you know? Uh, my outlook is very positive. I think that in the higher stakes, there's almost a different set of like standards that are usually um, upheld versus what I've seen in like lower stakes. Like I think a woman in playing lower stakes is more likely to get harassed or you know and not have somebody stand up for or whatever than than what I personally you know am likely to experience in a high stakes cash game. I also think that my personality, I just have kind of a strong personality, and so I think that men tend to not just like give me 
uh, as much shit as they maybe would another woman because I'm pretty good at just, you know, throwing it back. So, yeah, I think that, you know, my experience hasn't been that so much. There have been, you know, certain circumstances here and there, but overall not as much. But, I mean, you know, I do definitely do think it does exist in poker. I want to um, ask you a couple things. Uh, the police with the... You know, some of the conversation after, like, once you get off, will be about defunding the police. I'm not so, I'm not necessarily sure where you stand on that. So, effectively defunding the police, there's a lot of stances. Effectively reducing the budget of the police and then putting it towards other things. So, where do you stand on that? And then we could just talk about, uh, you know, COVID and poker and like when you're gonna start playing live again, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that there needs to be, like, definitely, like, uh, some sort of, like, reform, you know. Um, I worry a little bit about, you know, defund the police because mm -hmm. I feel like that's almost something that people hear that and they're like, oh, they're going to, like, dismantle the police, we're going to police. And then they go into, like, it's like, I feel like it's an opportunity for people to play on other people's fears and use that for, you know, political gain. Uh, but I definitely think the idea of clearly we need better training. Like our police officers, they need better training. We need uh, more accountability, like more screening, you know, um, things like that. Like manager, like skills to like de-escalate situations instead of just be the one that's like escalating. Like these are basic things that police officers, it needs to be like drilled and drilled and drilled. Um, and obviously we're not doing that. So yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of, hey, maybe let's like take some money from our fucking riot gear and maybe we can use that for some more like psychological training and you know shit like that because clearly what we're doing is not working. I don't know how you know Minneapolis they said they're like you know dismantling yeah yeah dismantling the police force or whatever. I, I worry about that. Um, again, like I said, I feel like I worry that it gives it can almost be like a too far and also let's like make rational decisions let's not like make emotional ones because people like let's i just want to see like some evidence like how what does that look like what does that mean what is your plan how are you going to do that you know do, do you feel like i know your husband is i believe he's a teacher um or yeah. in, or in wrestling right so do you feel as if at least the, the teaching budget is simply just like not high enough and like in your household like are those conversations ever had yeah for sure i mean i think that for like us to attract people to teaching, um, you know, we need to have why, like, why would you, my husband and I, when we were like in college, we were both going to college to be teachers and had that happened, had we continued on that path, like we were basically probably accepting a, a life of, you know, yeah, we save a little bit. We live very modestly. We maybe if we're lucky go on one vacation a year, but essentially like, you know, I don't want to say like economic hardship because, but we're definitely not going to be like flourishing, you know, oh, yeah. we're accepting that we're not going to be wealthy people by both of us being teachers. And, you know, teachers aren't in it for, you know, a ton of money. And I don't think anybody's going to be going into that profession because they're like super financially motivated, but at the same time, you shouldn't have to sacrifice a, a life of like comfort for, you know? So, I mean, yeah, I think it's, how are we supposed to get good teachers and how are we supposed to do that without throwing money into like education? And then you just look at so many things in our, like world that could be fixed by better education, but where does, how does that start if we don't have the money for it? You know, I just feel like we allocate our resources and you know a lot of the a lot of wrong places. Okay, I want to talk to you a little, a little bit about poker. So some of the games have started running at Venetian. So I see like some 1020, 2040 uh, running at Venetian. What's your take on starting live games? Uh, obviously, you are involved in the live scene plenty. At, are you thinking about 
getting in there, running some games, uh, obviously once like Aria or the wind started opening? I'm just not in a big hurry to return to live poker. Honestly, this is almost this like quarantine, whatever. It's kind of like, give me time to like step back and, um, I've kind of had some reflection on if that's even what I like forever want to do. Um, I've lost a little bit of like my passion for it, I guess. So I'm definitely not really in a hurry. To, I haven't, I haven't missed it much. I gotta be honest. I've missed like the people, um, but the poker and like the politics that now going to poker and all that, it's just, it gets exhausting. And so, no, I'm not in a huge hurry. Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of just like chilling right now. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm sorry this all happened. I'm sorry that whatever, but personally, like this has been just a little nice, like reset for me. It was a good pause, you're saying. Like, it was just a good pause from, like, the whole scene. Um, yeah, it was a good pause, and I'm not really ready to hit the play button yet. How, how about your online? Like, I know you started running some, like, online games. How has that gone? That's actually been really fun. That's uh, something that I've done. This is I do, like, a twice-weekly uh, Zoom game, and we play all sorts of, like, stupid shit. Like, I mean, 25-cent, 50-cent, 5 card double board PLO. Like, nobody <laughs> has any clue what they're doing, you know? Um but it, it's nice because some of the guys that, you know, the people that join that Zoom call weekly, um, a couple of them are, like, immunocompromised. They, like, literally have not been out of their house or whatever, and they really look forward to, like, the socialization. Um, so that's been fun. Uh, and then, you know, I do play in, like, one other private game on, like, a app or whatever that's that runs pretty frequently. I can play as much as I want. And I play it, but not nearly as much as... I probably should, or most people would, because it's a good game, but I only play maybe once a week. I've just been kind of, like, taking the time to chill out, hang with the family, um, you know, like I said, just kind of pause. So, in the online... First time in my entire life, I'm considering the idea of, like, doing something other than poker. Like, maybe not immediately, but I'm kind of, like, opening my mind to the idea of, like, you what know... Would that, what would that look like for you? I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I'm like... It feels um, like fitness is, like, a very natural transition for you. Yeah, I like fitness, um, but... I don't know. I've got like the nursing degree. Um, I'm really interested in like mental health nursing. The problem is that I've never had a schedule. Like I don't mm. mind the work, but I like, you know, I've always had my independence. I've never had somebody be like, no, you have to be at work this time and this time, this time. And like, I think that would be a tough adjustment for me. But I mean, that's real life. You know, I can't sit here and complain. Like most people have jobs. I've done this forever, you know, and I don't know, maybe I'll just find myself back to poker. I'm, I'm just kind of in a weird, like, eh starting I mean, to consider the idea of something else you've always been good to me in poker that's for sure there was a there was a night there was a night where i was like hey i need to uh i need to borrow like thirty thousand dollars but tell people that people are gonna be like yo Moon, can i get some money <laughs> and that was funny i was just like i was like well i don't have money here but i need money <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with my husband. In fairness, let's, full disclosure, there was like multiple vouchers and, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah, including yeah, yeah, for sure. himself. So, yeah, you for know, sure. God. But that's still. Like my husband and I, like, because, you know, poker, you just like, we just throw our money, like, whatever. And you, mm -hmm. you borrow, you know, whatever. And you get a little bit immune to that. And I feel like you almost have to be um, kind of like remove yourself from the attachment to the money a little bit so I can get a, you know. But for my husband, he's like busting his balls for a job. And he's like, oh, you, just for sure. you just borrowed half my income. Like, <laughs> what? You know? I know, I know. I mean, it, you know, I wanted, that was like the first time you've, we've like exchanged that large sum of money. So yeah. I, I, I made sure that like you didn't have to ask me for it and you didn't even have to come to me. Like I went to you, 
gave you yeah, back the money sure. immediately. Uh, it was great. Like, again, it, I was never, you know, uncomfortable with it, but it was kind of funny because it's just something that, like, in our world, that's just kind of, you know, I wouldn't say standard, but it certainly happens a lot more than, you know, when my husband's a damn teacher and he's like, what the fuck? What? Like, this Wait, is not why, normal. Like, this, you know? Like, why'd you lend that Spanish kid 30000 You're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of nice. So it keeps me in check, honestly. So the, the, the game, like, I know you let everyone... Uh, everyone in the, your your online game. Uh, tell people a little bit about that. Maybe they probably want to sign up. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like one of those clubs. We play on King's Club or whatever, um, and I've been doing it. We were doing it Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, but I'm going to pull back to Thursday, Saturday. Do it at 5 p.m. Um, and yeah, we just, I mean, everybody is welcome. Even people, like, we always put, you know, guys can hit me up on social media or whatever. Um, we give out the Zoom chat. So even if people don't want to play, like, or, you know, some people are kind of sketched out by, like, the apps and depositing whatever and i totally get that that's cool but um a lot of people just show up just to hang out socialize i have some guests on there uh i'm going on vacation with tuckman dave tuckman and his family next week and we're gonna uh zoom together whatever but yeah we just play like stupid games sometimes 25 cent 50 cents sometimes one two everyone's on like two five might even go on screw on five cent tens it's just whatever people want to do yeah, so, yeah it's, just, it's like it's just a chill environment you're not really trying to like make money yeah i would say like, it's like it gives me some structure to my week which is something that when we first went to quarantine i was like which is weird because as a poker player, we don't have structure anyways. But it just felt like every single day was like the same. It felt like it was like, what, you know. So just having something that's like, okay, so this is scheduled. Like, you know, it helped me mentally. And I, I think it was a lot of the people who joined the Zoom call, they've been like super appreciative of just, you know, same thing. Something to do. So we talk a lot about, you know, before I let you go, we talk a lot about fitness. Uh, in fairness, like you're probably one of the, the people that like when I was like first like struggling with fitness, like you were just like, oh, you just got to like show up do it uh i remember one of the first games i played with you i was like yeah man like i'm really struggling with this fitness and you're like well what are you gonna do about it and i was like damn all right D -moon, chill out <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I, was like, I was like trying to play the seven eight suit and i'm getting yelled at by D -moon. <laughs> and uh what are your fitness goals currently do you have any fitness goal i know you're i see your story sometimes like you're just like really getting after it yeah, you know, I mean, this is, I've put on, like, 10 pounds during quarantine, too. Like, we have a gym, we're, like, working out or whatever, but, like, I'm not even gonna lie, I drank a lot. I was just, like, I'm kind of bored. My one glass of wine, you know, turned into, like, okay, I'm gonna have a, a bottle of wine, you know? Mm -hmm. I drank a lot in the last couple of months, I, which I'm not concerned about, like, in any, you know, way, shape, or form. It's fine. I, it just was, like, a, uh, I'm bored, something to do, but wasn't very good for the fitness. Uh, definitely scaling back on that now. And also, like, I just need... I need, I'm somebody who I need to be like in a group. Like I do, you know, CrossFit or whatever. And a lot of people are like, oh, I got to talk about CrossFit. Yeah. But it, it has been something that has been like life changing for me. It's the first thing I've ever done fitness wise that I wasn't bored by. And like, it's just constantly changing. And, and like I said, you know, like I told you, you just have to like show up. So like, I love that. Like, I, you know, I show up for an hour, I get a full workout. I feel good. You know, I can most part like eat when I want and not get too fat, you know? So right now my fitness goals are just to like, I'm kind of in the repunishing myself for letting myself go this last couple of months. I uh, just started going back to classes this week. So I just, oh, cool. my goals right now are just to show up. I mean, and kind of get myself back to where I was or, you know, my sweatpants are a little more stretchy than they used to be. <laughs> All right. Thank you, D Moon. I, I, the best part of this conversation is that Berkey didn't get to say a word. And uh, that was, that was, that was good. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I will have special thanks to my son for letting me hijack it. This, computer he was not super excited about it <laughs> i appreciate you all right thank you thanks guys all right so what'd you think about what uh what d moon said in terms of people didn't really care about they don't even see the racism and also 
slightly moving away from the metropolitan area people are just like solely focused on on the looters i know we spoke about this before but like do you think that it's just like a metropolitan thing or like what's going on it's, it's an economic thing man it's always an economic thing like it got framed as a political thing of being conservative versus liberal but it's not it's money versus not money cities are rich rural is poor right so when rural people see expensive things get destroyed they react and they say why would you do such a thing they value material goods because they don't have material goods yeah i know you've been making this argument about like why do the right side want the police unions and it doesn't make any sense oh this is a huge contradiction right uh, liberal America is super for unions. Conservative America is super against unions, except when it involves police. For some reason, like when you're talking about authority and, uh, you know, utilizing the military in some sort of capacity, it flips. And I mean, I guess that makes sense to some degree if you scale all the way up to military, because, you know, right leans heavily into uh, being a militant uh, nation that war hawks and you know effectively our number one outsourced commodity is our military mm -hmm. where liberal america leans a lot towards pacifying things and wants to defund the military and you know this escalates downward but yeah i mean i think god i hope anyway that this battle of contradiction where a side that is very anti-union is very pro-police union and a side that is very pro-union, is very anti-police union, will somehow demonstrate some of the hypocrisies that we see through policy, that we see through party lines. And maybe, just maybe, rational thinking will prevail and will recognize that there are flaws to both of these lines of logic. One last thing, I think it's kind of important, uh, just because the tonality of things have generally changed. I think some people feel as if the police is being mistreated here. I mean, this entire thing, mm -hmm. like, and I want to play the New York City police chief's video. Stop treating us like animals and thugs and start treating us with some respect. That's what we're here today to say. We've been left out of the conversation. We've been vilified, trying to make us embarrassed of our profession. 375 million interactions, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive. Nobody talks about all the police officers that were killed in the last week in the United States of America. And there were a number of them. Like, what is he trying to say, man? Like, we should feel sorry for him? Like, sorry. I for empathize the with them. Uh, I mean, I think that they are a part of a broken system. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate because there's a layer of pride that is attributed to these professions, right? We hold in high regard our military, our firemen, our uh, police officers you know their their shield says to protect and serve and they are meant to be the good samaritans i saw uh you know i still follow my cop friend and he posted something that said uh it's in our creed to fight the bad guy therefore by default the actions we're currently taking have to be true right and basically implying that if they're acting with force against these crowds it's because it's deserved and so, like, I empathize with their message because they're following orders in a lot of ways. Uh, in a lot of ways, they are just a byproduct of their culture. They are, I mean, that entire speech 
was the embodiment of tribalism on display. The police officers are tribalistic by nature. They view it as a them versus us type of lens where uh, it's easy to point to the stats and say like the overwhelming majority of them are positive. Yes, that's true. The overwhelming majority of Americans are not in jail. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that the 2.4 million that are in jail deserve to be there. And it doesn't mean that the, you know, maybe five or seven million Americans aren't being harassed, right? So it's very unfortunate because, you know, his passion is born out of what he's been conditioned into for decades. And he just can't see the forest through the trees. It's impossible. And it's unfortunate because somebody who is capable of seeing the forest through the trees in that position of power can actually relegate change throughout the culture. But he's just furthering along the same message that we've already heard. He says, we roundly uh, dismiss what happened in, in Minnesota as being repugnant, right? Mm -hmm. But And then he follows it up and says, "We that's not us. We don't do that. Do you remember Eric Gardner? Mm -hmm. It wasn't that long ago. Literally, the I can't breathe quote came from Eric Gardner on the streets of New York City. Yeah, for sure. Those cops were never per prosecuted. So it's not a matter of how often does violent acts occur between the police and the civilians. It's how often are the cops held accountable that engage in these violent acts. And now when we start to talk about um, immunity and you know, the, the, the power that the police union holds over the political realm, over the citizens that it's policing and things of that nature, there are just zero checks and balances in place. So that's why you're being vilified. That's why your legislatures have abandoned you because we have no other recourse to keep you in check. So you know, yeah, police officers are taking one on the chin right now, but they deserve to. Right, they're not acting with, with the benefit of the collective in mind. They're acting in accordance to what they've been trained to do. They're just following orders. They're simply foot soldiers. And I don't want to dismiss people that have taken on the the path of uh, military or or law enforcement or whatever the case may be, because it's not their fault. It's the laws that are in place mm -hmm. that are at fault. So there's been a lot of talk about defund the police that, you know, I introduced it briefly talking to Deep Moon. I want to play a video because I don't think a lot of people really even understand what that means. Like, what does defund the police even mean? So I want to get right into, before we even have more to talk about, uh, the budgets. If you just look at the New York City Police Department, which is the largest in the country by far, twice as large as the FBI, it literally has seen a 22% increase in budget, as I understand it, over the last four years, it means that in New York City, we have, say, 5,500 public safety officers in schools. We have only 560 school psychologists. But we have 1.1 million children, including over 100,000 of those who are homeless. I think the call to action is simply to the legislative is like, there's just too much money being allocated to police. And we need to move things in other directions and see if that solves uh, the disparity problem. Yeah, that may that may be uh, what we see, but that's not the problem. 
The problem is the power being allocated to the police, right? So the power of the police union is what allows it to get all the successive funding. Mm -hmm. It's what allows it to be so difficult to penetrate whenever it comes to holding police accountable. It's what allows for uh, the immunity that's negotiated, mm -hmm. right? All of this stuff is taking place due to the power and strength of the police union. If you want to quote unquote defund the police, if you want to reallocate these sources, if you want to have uh, those who are signing up to protect and serve be held under uh, more stringent guidelines, have more encompassing training, uh, be subjected to more uh, mental health training, or maybe even at least uh, mental health. Um, I think I just saw something recently where um, a police officer was uh, found out to be running a white supremacist group mm -hmm. in his spare time, right? And it, it's like, even with that type of information available, it becomes very difficult to fire that person, right? So all of these things uh, embody the, the deeper issue. And that is we are just too subjective to the power of the actual unionization of these police forces. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, don't, don't start with the defunding. We're, we're shining a light on the wrong problem, right? That will, the funding will then be reallocated after the union's broken up. Once you take that power away from the police and they lose a lot of that leverage, now, number one, it'll be less attractive to be a police officer, which is not a bad thing, right? It's just like the conversation you have with Demoon about teaching. If there's a layer of passion necessary in order to become a teacher, it stands to reason you'll be a better teacher. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a counterpoint to that. If you're not financially motivated and if, uh, you know, you feel like you have a better path forward in other realms because you'll have a higher quality of life, then we're going to lose our best and brightest that could have otherwise been teachers. And that's fair. And the well, same, you just, you just need to pay them fairly. Right. And then the passion will push forward. Right. You know? And the same will hold true for police officers, right? If, if we put more stringent metrics around what it takes to be a cop, we can compensate them better. Mm. Right. Because now it's a much more selective task force. It's being, stringently tested and stress tested and put through de-escalation training and you know i, I saw a stat uh I, i'm not gonna get this exactly right but like uh i think on average the world's police force is something like six months plus of training and ours is something like eight to ten weeks uh wow. and we're one of the few police forces in the world that are armed so it's just like, this This is an insane thing. Of course, everybody else is going through de-escalation training. They're not weaponized. Yeah. You know? So uh, I think like really, this is a root cause analysis type of thing where if we recognize that the true uh, sore spot here is how militant and powerful the police are, and then maybe even taking it a step further, uh, re-examining the laws that they're truly enforcing. All of that gets... Like, like once you start to blow up that portion of the system, all the ancillary problems that, that are plaguing us, uh, you know, over budgeting and uh, being underfunded for mental health, being underfunded for um, child services and other social programs and stuff like that, they all reap the rewards. So essentially the thoughts would be that the community would benefit long-term from a more precise uh, 
uh, sort of solution, which just basically involves, you know, taking some power away from the law enforcement. Let's play the video from Camden. I think uh, now that Minneapolis has disbanded their police, I think they're going to look to Camden. Camden switched to community policing in 2013 after a huge spike in homicides. According to this article in Bloomberg Business Week in 2013, the mayor and city council dissolved the local police department and signed an agreement for the county to provide shared services that doubled the size of their old force. Police also got de-escalation training, body cameras, and a very strict use of force policy. According to the department, reports of excessive force complaints in Camden have dropped 95% since 2014. The police in Camden They're not just going to like nitpick every single thing, especially when they know the target is people that don't have money. They, yeah. You know, you speeding to the airport, they're going to get you. They got me. I know. I was there. But, uh, you know, someone that... 30% of the of the populations on the poverty line, that $400 ticket's like pretty bad. Yeah. You know, it could be devastating in terms of like it, it throws off potentially months of income, you know, and it scales down the line now. Like the kid doesn't have enough food, et cetera. You know, things continue to pile on. What I found interesting too is that they doubled the force while de-escalating the amount of complaints of use of excessive force. I think that's like pretty good. And that came from de-escalating, which is like what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a few things to note. So I, I did a fair amount of reading on Camden yesterday to prepare for this. Um, first and foremost, like by them dissolving their police force, what they're effectively saying is they dissolved the police union, mm -hmm. right? They obviously still have a police presence. Correct. Uh, it's just not under the the usual um, constructs of uh, a municipal. Correct. So right. they, you're saying they fired and rehired, correct? Under under different under different terms. Yes, under like different contracts. So effectively, they become a, a community activist group that possesses the power of police, but they lack the union representation, and because of that, they're obviously trained differently because they're held to a different standard now. So they don't have protected immunity. They don't have uh, these luxuries that other unions have bargained for. Um, so what ultimately happened was there is something known as a broken window policy. And this started in the Reagan administration. It was uh, basically an idea where if you dissolve small crime, you'll prevent big crime, mm -hmm. right? So basically, like if the writing's on the wall uh, and you're not paying attention to it, you're susceptible to a bigger problem, right? So if if you're in a high crime neighborhood where there's a bunch of petty theft and all these small crimes taking place, it's likely that you're gonna see escalation. Okay. What they're operating is what the true definition of a broken window policy is. So rather than punishing all these petty crimes, right? They're just basically tasking the community to be their eyes and, uh, you know, kind of, I don't want to say uh, tattle, but like basically they're asking the community to point out uh, quote unquote broken windows as they occur or petty crime as it occurs. And then they're parsing it as a force to say, okay, this has legs. And, you know, we've seen this happening a lot in this particular area. Let's increase our presence there a little bit. Mm -hmm yada 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 but they're not persecuting the actual petty crimes themselves 
right? They're just trying to allocate their resources in accordance to where patterns are, cons are, are consistently occurring. And it's based upon the community kind of being their watch in some, some efforts, right? So that leads into why they're also not overly policing things like traffic tickets. And, mm. Right? It, it's what I came across in my reason. Camden was the poorest county in the in in the entire nation yeah in all of the united states uh in was, 2013 i remember that uh they're still one of the poorest but their um economics have continually increased gradually um so there has been benefits right and their crime rate has gradually decreased uh effectively this seems like a good sample of one to point to and say like this may have legs but again, uh, it's very important to represent what problems we're trying to solve and really shine a light on whether or not they're being achieved, right? So what, what I thought was a little bit misleading about that clip was it was making it seem like a lack of police presence was making the neighborhood more safe. What I would prefer is a demonstration. Why'd you say that? They increased the force by... 2x right but then all of the highlights were on less uh was on de-escalation was on less uh police enforcement of petty crime you know effectively it was it was framing it out the message of less policing equals a happier community i see and that may or may not be true but i think we're gonna have a hard time finding data to like hard back it what we can find data on though is how that police force uh performs compared to a unionized one and I think it's much more probable that we'll be able to draw parallels and say this police force that has been forced now under more stringent uh, credentials and more uh, stringent judgment based on the actions that they take, based on the protocols that they follow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the line, is massively outperforming these other areas yeah. where the police force is unionized. All right. Well... A lot of topics next week we'll talk about uh berkey playing uh 100 200 online no, that seems like it. well maybe we'll bring a hand maybe we'll bring a hand something like that for people to enjoy man people want to you know why do we why does every topic we talk about make me sad yeah. <laughs> what what do you want to talk about i try to i try to throw you lambs i throw you women at the club you don't bite <laughs> i don't what do you want me to do man i try every episode there's one topic Talk about Bergie playing high stakes and, and running it up and running it down. Yeah, well, you know, no, I don't I'll talk about that. That's fine. I don't create the story. I just tell the story. Mm, you just report it. Sure. <laughs> With that said, I'm glad you all joined us. Thank you, D Moon Girl. Thank you to production. Thank you to all watching. Thank you who will watch on the replay. Thank you who hates us. Thank you to all of us. Thank you, my mom. Thank you to everyone. And like, subscribe, follow, tell your friends. See you later. Go ahead and play it, man. I know it, I know.